When I uh, used to preach in Christian churches, I always started my a sermon with the prayer, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. I'm still comfortable with that prayer, but as a Buddhist, I would reframe it as, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be true and reflect the Buddha nature that is within all of us. Following up on the last two talks that I've given, which dealt with the current social and political climate in the country and in the world, the topic I wish to address this morning is actually two questions. What unites us? What divides us? If one follows the news at all today, and I know that all of us here do, it's abundantly clear that we're living in a time of tremendous social and political upheaval not just in this country, but throughout the world. If you look at the news abroad, authoritarianism, nationalistic right-wing ideologies are growing in strength everywhere, as seen in recent elections in Germany, in the Netherlands, in Austria, even in Sweden. And this suggests that a, large, a larger ideological gap is growing throughout the Western world between what we would call conservatives and progressives everywhere. And if we just look at this country alone, I think many of us would agree with what has often been said that there is greater divisiveness within our country right now than there has been perhaps at any time since the Civil War. Tremendous divide. This divisiveness is driven by anger, bitterness, and increasing violence, as we saw in Charlottesville a few months ago, and as we seem to see almost every day in increasing acts of gun violence and terrorism. And I think because of this, many people are anxious, confused, frightened, and perhaps discouraged by the prospect that the situation doesn't seem likely to change anytime soon. So what I'd like to explore with you a bit this morning is what is this divisiveness all about? What feeds it? And what, if anything, can we do to help offset it and to work toward promoting greater unity, less divisiveness? As I said in one of my previous talks, and we've heard from many of the media pundits, there are all kinds of sociological factors that contribute to the divisiveness in this country, and perhaps near the top of the list, which has been pointed out a lot, is that there is a working class who have been economically deprived and have felt overlooked by those in power in Washington and feel bitter and angry about that. They feel that the establishment has abandoned them, and largely it has. And so they have felt drawn to leaders like Donald Trump, who thumbs his nose at Washington elite and follows his own path. And you can see similar situations playing out in a lot of Western European countries. Those who have been in power here in the last couple of decades have, I think, clearly been short-sighted in overlooking the needs of many in the population. And those people are understandably upset and angry. And those of us who call ourselves progressives, I think we've often shared in this short-sightedness. And we shouldn't be surprised that many in the working class uh, designate us among those whom they would call the enemy elite. But in my opinion, this is really only one part of the picture. It's only one part of the analysis of why we have this hostile polarization. I think another aspect of it, which is equally important and often overlooked, 
is the psychological aspect. The group psychology that is at work among both conservatives and progressives. I would suggest that a, a psychological understanding of the situation shows us that the basic cohesiveness that is seen by either side in their understanding of what unites them is often based on a basic fundamental misunderstanding of what unity is or what it should be. And I think we can see this if we look back a year ago at the presidential election. While both Democrats and Republicans had some positive agendas that they promoted and that promoted their voting, polls showed that unity, that, that many if not most on both sides, felt united by what they were voting against almost more than what they were voting for. Donald Trump for many Democrats, Hillary Clinton and the swamp in Washington for many Republicans. Many felt united much more by what they opposed than by what they affirmed. And I would suggest that this kind of negative cohesiveness reflects and promotes further divisiveness. It's based on an assumption that our sense, whoever the we may be, our sense of goodness or validation comes largely from the evil or badness that we see in those whom we oppose. And it is this distorted and I think dangerous sense of unity against the enemy that lies, I think, beneath ultimately most sexism, racism, and bigotry. It's driven by the belief that we, and you can fill in the blanks who the we are, are one, we are united because we are better than them, which you can fill in the blanks, who are seen as inferior because they're not like us. They're different and that makes them less worthy. And it's this kind of assertion that I think historically has pitted race against race, religion against religion, gender against gender. It's pretty clear to me, and I'm guessing that it is to you too, that this kind of attitude, I think, is largely a psychological defense that is driven by feelings of insecurity, inferiority, not being good enough. And here is where I think, and forgive me for being repetitive here because I have said this a few times before in Dharma Talks, but I think it's worth repeating. I think that C.G. Jung, the Swiss psychoanalyst, has been very helpful and was very insightful when he spoke about the shadow side of the human psyche. Jung suggested that within each of us there is a mix of good and evil, light and shadow. Understandably, we do not want to acknowledge the darker shadow side of our character. Nobody does, so we repress it. And if that were the end of the story, it wouldn't be so bad. But as Jung pointed out, what we do then is that we project what we have repressed. So we look for scapegoats under whom we can project those traits that we can't accept in ourselves. We make them the bad ones, the enemy, and we often make the terrible mistake of buying into the illusion that we are the good ones and those whom we brand as enemies are the personification of evil. And if we could rid the world of them, everything would be just fine. Now, this is a relatively simple concept, but the way it plays out is anything but simple. For one thing, we don't pick just anyone on whom to project our shadow side. We, uh, our psyches are clever. We tend to pick those who personify just enough of our own weaknesses to validate 
our perception, to validate our projections. And when we do it, we then see it as an expression of unity, a proof that we, again, fill in the blanks, whites, males, Christians, Democrats, Republicans, are a united front against the inferiority of African Americans, Native Americans, females, Muslims, Republicans, Democrats, etc. And it is this fallacious and dangerous projection that feeds our prejudices and leads, I think, to divisiveness, oppression, and ultimately to the wars and violence that we see in our world. I think Jung was brilliant and prophetically correct in this understanding of how the collective psyche works in attempting to protect itself from the darker truths that it harbors. This dynamic of collective projection has plagued humanity since the beginning of recorded time. Now, again, I've used this example before, but I'm going to use it again because I think it's one of the most pertinent. One of the most obvious examples of this was Nazi Germany, where Germans who had experienced the loss of World War I and the collapse of their economy attempted to compensate for what was really a national inferiority complex by projecting their inferiority onto the Jews who they then tried to exterminate. And if evil was seen as residing in the Jews, then all the noble and good was seen as residing by contrast in what Nietzsche called the great blonde beast, the Aryan race of German Nazis. In this country, we're not so innocent. In this country, white immigrant classes who came here largely because they were suffering from oppression in their home countries and then often received a hostile welcome when they arrived here compensated by enslaving blacks and attempting to exterminate Native Americans. And then after the losses and hardships of World War II, as a nation, we compensated for our insecurity by demonizing first communists and more recently Muslims or jihadists. So I think that Jung was particularly insightful when he suggested that all of us, by virtue of being human, possess a dark, shadow side, which contains all those personality traits that we abhor and are loath to admit exists within us. And to the extent that we can't own that shadow side, we have to create enemies onto whom we can project it. And thus begins the cycle of demonization and divisiveness. Now this is very tricky, because in the dualistic world in which we live every day, there are ethical and moral differences between different groups and different ideologies. Those of us who promote love, compassion, and justice will clearly feel a sense of unity in our opposition to those whom we feel promote greed, hostility, and oppression. How could we not? That's been abundantly clear this last year under the current administration. One that by most measures would appear to personify greed, ignorance, racism, sexism, and bigotry. I would suggest that it is not an elusive sense of unity to feel united against what that administration stands for. Indeed, one might suggest it is our moral duty to do so. But where we have to be careful is therefore not to demonize those people, not to demonize Trump and those that follow him. Because if we do that, then we fall prey to the illusion that if we could just destroy Donald Trump and all those who follow him, that would solve the problem, which is frighteningly similar to Trump's idea 
that if we could rid the world of Muslims, jihadists, and maybe also immigrants, the world would be a happier and safer place. So our first task, as Jung has so wisely pointed out, is to acknowledge first our own imperfections, our own shadow side, which contains elements of the same greed, hostility, and oppressiveness that we see in our current administration. In short, coming to terms, if you will, with the Donald Trump that exists in each of us, because we each do have that within us, somewhere in the depths of our psyche. It's not a pleasant thought. I know I don't like it. One of the central teachings of Christianity is Jesus' words, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. I don't think there can be any more difficult thing in the world than this, right? Especially right now, today. It sounds like capitulation, but I don't think that that's what Jesus was suggesting. He doesn't say agree with everything your enemies say or do, however unjust or abusive it may be. What he is saying, I think, is that we need to see those whom we brand as enemies first and foremost as human beings like us. And when we can do that, then we can hope to enter into dialogue with them and to appeal to the best in the humanity that they share with us. But for this to happen, we first have to acknowledge and face the inner shadow that we share. And this, I think, has to be one of the most difficult and painful tasks demanded of us. And it's certainly understandable that none of us really want to undertake that task. Nobody wants to face their own shadow because it tends to lead to feelings of shame, guilt, and even dirtiness. So what can we do about that? I think that here is where a universal view beyond the self and the individual ego can come to our aid. The realization that none of us is uniquely bad. We're not uniquely good, but we're also not uniquely bad. If it's awful to acknowledge that I have a potential abuser or criminal somewhere within my psyche, which I doubtless do, it's helpful for me to realize that you do too, and you, and you, and you. We all have our own piece of the collective shadow. In the words of the great psychologist Harry Stack Sullivan, we are all more human than otherwise. And that includes all human traits, the bad, along with the good. I think this kind of awareness, which is difficult to come to, is achieved through honest, deeply honest introspection. Sometimes that can be facilitated by the process of counseling or psychotherapy, which is one of the reasons that I chose the profession that I'm in. But it also can come through spiritual discipline, through a spiritual practice of meditation and self-reflection that helps us to look inward with compassion and empathy. But that includes and empathy and compassion for those parts of ourselves that we don't like, the parts of ourselves, the shadow part that we would like to disown. And it's that kind of insight that I think can really unite us, because it's an awareness that at the deepest level, we are all the same, all of us. We're brothers and sisters not because we share a common skin color, a common religion, a common political ideology, or especially a common enemy. But because we know that at the deepest level, those things don't define us. 
What does define us is a kind of totality, what Jung called the self with a capital S that contains good and evil. And because it contains both, it transcends both. I think this is essentially what the second Wan Buddhist grandmaster, one of my favorites, Chong San, called a vital force. He described this beautifully in the following words when he was discussing the ethics of threefold unity. If we are to achieve unity, Chong San said, we first must realize the principle that all sentient beings are essentially interconnected by a single vital force. And we should thereby establish within our own minds the great spirit that views all humans and sentient beings as one. He goes on to say, in this world there are many nationalities, and within the same nationality various clans. However, if one closely examines their source, their fundamental energies are all interconnected as a single vital force. In that realm where heaven and earth are one's parents and the universe one's home, all human beings are one's siblings, essentially interconnected by a single vital force. Now, ultimately, I think the vision that Chong San is describing would cut across all lines, including ethnic divisions, political parties, socioeconomic class, or status. And I think as Buddhists, all of us here would probably affirm, doubtless affirm, that vision. But putting it into practice is difficult especially when confronted with the kinds of divisions that we see in the world today. What I think we need to understand, hopefully, is that seeing all of humanity as being part of the same vital force does not mean, therefore, that there are no significant differences among us and that these differences have no implications for our common welfare or for the future of our planet. The fact is that in this dualistic world in which we live, breathe, and mostly have our being, our thoughts and actions do matter a lot. There's a significant ethical dimension to human behavior. That's why we have rules and laws. That's why Wan Buddhism teaches the study of facts and principles, the selection of right conduct, the eight articles, the four general principles, the essentials of moral practice, which we recite here at the end of Dharma service every Sunday. These are all guides toward living the best lives that we can live in a world that is marked by hostility as well as love, by greed as well as generosity, by evil as well as good. In seeking to live as much as possible within the principles of love, compassion, and empathy, which I think all of us here strive to do, we bear both individual and collective responsibility for making this happen. We're clearly responsible for everything that we say and do at every moment in our lives and for the impact that our actions and words have upon others. Now, it's so easy to get caught up in feelings of resentment and hostility toward those whom we see as adversaries, and I don't know about you, but I deal with that every single day. I too often find myself fantasizing that some of our current political leaders will suffer some terrible fate, have a fatal accident, fall off a cliff, have a heart attack, or whatever. <laughs> I'm not proud of those thoughts. But I also don't beat myself up for having them. In the current political climate, I think we're all vulnerable to such fantasies and thoughts. 
But believing in the principles of love and compassion that I learned both in the Christianity with which I grew up and in the Buddhism that has so shaped my thought for the last 20 plus years, I believe strongly that real change cannot come from antipathy and hostility. If we base our sense of unity too much on our shared antipathy toward those who we feel are the forces of destruction and hostility in the world, our actions are likely to be motivated by vindictiveness and revenge. And that, in the long run, I think, increases the divisiveness that diminishes all of us. Again, this is not to say that we do not today experience an appropriate sense of antipathy and even horror at those forces that tear apart our society and our world. But I think if we're going to see real lasting positive change and a movement toward greater unity among the various factions, this is going to have to come from two things. First, from accepting our own imperfections, our own shadow side, our own complicity in things being as bad as they are today. And secondly, by placing our emphasis more on positive change, both within our own fragile and divided psyches and in actions that seek to promote change that will help to erase the socioeconomic forces that undermine justice and equality in our society. On a very practical level, what I am suggesting is this. Drawing on our own deeper spiritual awareness, our best selves, if you will, I hope and pray that all of us can put more energy into creating positive change. For example, change the makeup of the Congress of the United States in 2018. That would be huge. I would urge that we make an effort to put less energy into venomous attacks on the current political structure which feeds our inner feelings of helplessness and divisiveness, as difficult as that is today. And being aware of our own fallibility, our own weaknesses, our own inner shadows, our own complicity in the problems that plague the world, I would urge that we try to see those with whom we disagree not as demons, but that we share a common humanity, that they share a common humanity with us. And from that basic perspective, try to seek a dialogue and to work for change and greater unity. That's not easy. I think we clearly need to draw on our spiritual practice to help us achieve that. Through meditation, introspection, study, and the self-awareness that emerges from all that, I really do believe that we can hope to learn how to be positive agents of change, how to help move our families, our communities, our country, our world from toxic divisiveness toward some real unity. It's a tall order, sometimes overwhelming. But I think it's not just one worth striving for, but ultimately, in the long run, it is perhaps critical to our survival and to the survival of our planet. A lot is at stake. Thank you for letting me share my thoughts with you this morning.